And now our third reading from St. John's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 41. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. And Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have not sinned, but now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Hear and see the word of the Lord. There are things that happen to us or around us in life that have us, well, wondering. We witness things and we go back and we try to take the time to reflect, to properly get our mind around what we witnessed. Sometimes these things are physical. Like that one day I was in a college campus on the quad wearing flip-flops, shorts, and a t-shirt. It was warm. I was speaking to somebody up on a balcony. We were having a conversation, and then we got notice of the fact that in the western sky, something ominous was rolling in. These were dark black clouds, just eerily, just approaching like some monster. Some doom was coming our way. And then just like that, in a moment, a gust of wind blew through the entire campus, and the temperature dropped quicker than a second. Just like that, I could see my breath. It's freezing cold. I had to go inside and change. Now, you can explain to me weather patterns and front lines. You can explain to me the oddity of Oklahoma City. That's where we were. 
And I can get it with my mind, but I've been trying ever since to really get my mind around the full experience that day. I mean, you can see I've wrestled with it. Fifteen years later, I'm still talking about that strange experience. Sometimes the experiences are not physical but moral in nature. I think most of us who are aware of the news still don't understand why a madman would walk into an Amish schoolhouse and shoot Amish school children. These Christian pacifist, peace-loving people who keep their nose straight and clean and keep themselves away from other people's business, why, oh why, oh why, would anyone want to walk into a schoolhouse of people like that, let alone children, and hurt them? How do you get the old noodle around that one? Or even still, and much more complicated, I think, is the fact that right after that grisly event, the parents and the leaders of that community came out in solidarity and pronounced forgiveness. Forgive the man who killed their children. A thing like that. How do you make sense of it? Here we are in the Gospels once again where Jesus is bringing the newness of God to bear upon the world. And whenever that happens, a sort of enchantment takes over and the people around are left scratching their heads wondering about how to interpret it, how to, how to really grasp it mentally. Such is the case with the story we've been rehearsing all morning long. It's a long tale. It's the tale of a man who was born blind. He was healed by Jesus and not only is he astonished, but so is everyone else who's looking on, including the religious leaders of the day, wondering how on earth could this be? It's an incredible story. And as I read it, I, I get a flow to it almost like a play that it kind of breaks down into certain acts, certain little, little bits that we've read this morning. So for your listening pleasure, I would like to introduce you to Act One the search for reasons, verses 1 through 12. It opens this way. There's a blind man on the side of the road. Jesus and his disciples were walking by. You know, the disciples were really theology students looking to the uh, theology teacher Jesus for wisdom. And for these people, the world was their textbook. Everything in the world was a prompting for another theological question, including people, yes, including blind beggars. And so the disciples, the theology students, look at their theology professor, Jesus, and say, Jesus, this man who's born blind, why was he, in fact, blinded? Was he blinded because of his own sin, or was he blinded because of the sin of another? You see, this is a representation of an ancient worldview, kind of a cosmological input-output machine. You put good things in, good things come back to you. You put bad things in, and bad things come back to you. It's an ancient worldview that a lot of the common folk in the day that we're looking at, they, they believed in such a world, in such a worldview. But it's not uncommon today, is it? Just 10 years ago, there was a famous television show called My Name is Earl. It was all about a man who was trying to right the wrongs of his world because he noted every time he did something bad, bad karma would come to him. And every time he did something good, good karma would come his way. People still think this way. Oh, and it's also infiltrated the church. I have a friend who was really in a bad way, brokenhearted, actually. 
He was looking for some fresh insight from God, so he decided to find a new church separate from his tradition in a new group, maybe in this new experience with these new people who have subtle but different points of view theologically. Maybe God would speak afresh and new to him. He sat in a small group for weeks, trying to develop the requisite intimacy with everyone in that group so that he could bear himself before them. One day he finally felt free enough to do so. And as he opened up, he began to sob and to weep with the ugly tears that only men can cry. He lowered his face to the ground, his tears rolled down his cheeks, and his shoulders began to bob up and down uncontrollably as he breathed heavily, trying to contain the emotion. He told them of the trouble that had befallen his world. He was looking for something, something fresh, something new, something helpful. The person who was leading the group sat up straight, cleared his voice to be heard, and said, well, friend, I suppose all of this means that you have some sort of secret sin that you're not telling people about, for why else would God let you suffer the way you're suffering? Not only was that bad pastoral care, but that was terrible, terrible theology, just in case you're confused. It's the theology of the Pharisees and even the disciples. If somebody has a problem, they must have done something wrong. If somebody is blessed, they must have done something right. But Jesus will have none of it. He looks to the disciples, his students, and then the blind man and says, the issue is not his sin, nor is it about the sin of his mom or his father. In fact, Jesus could have just said the truth. The world is a whole lot more complicated than that. There is light in it, but it also casts shadows. The world has been polluted with violence and negativity. It is good, but problems persist. It is far, far more complicated than that happy-go-lucky input-output machine that you think it is. He says, I don't even want you thinking about that mess. I want you to ask yourself, rather, what are you supposed to do in the face of one who suffers? And Jesus tells them what he's there to do in the face of the blind man's suffering. He says, this man was born in darkness, and I come to bring him light. He was born blind. I'm going to come and bring him sight. He was broken, and I come to make him whole. So famously, he spits. That's right, saliva. Spits on the dirt, makes a bit of mud, puts it on his eyes, and he is healed. Act two, fear of what is new, verses 13 through 23. Well, the Pharisees get wind of all this. They decide that they would like to inspect the man who was, you know, blind but now can see They're in disbelief. They're asking him, how many fingers am I holding up? They begin going left and right and this way and that. Is he really blind? No, he's not blind. He can see. But were you really blind before? Ah, you know, and they're going back and forth with their incredulity. Finally, they decide to do what people decide to do when young people don't sound quite right. They call mom and dad. They call the blind man's parents, and they say, hey, listen, your son was blind. Is that true? They said, yeah, it was. He can see. They said, wow. 
But they say, this guy, Jesus, healed him. What do you think about that? And mom and dad do something rather shameful. They go, well, don't look at us. I mean, he's young, but he's of age. Just ask him. He can answer for himself. He's of age now. Shameful. But they're afraid. Why do you suppose the parents were afraid of the Pharisees in that hour? I think it's the name Jesus. You see, up until now, Jesus has been persistent. He is a threat to the system. Jesus, all through the gospel, is seen as a threat to the system. Shameful still, the parents are, in my opinion. Yet they're not the only ones who are afraid in this moment. The Pharisees are as well, and you can include the other bystanders around them. They're all afraid. Why? Why are they so afraid? Simply put, if Jesus can take a blind man and making him whole into a man who can see, in no other words, Jesus is making new creation. And to make matters more deep, he's doing this on the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the Lord's day, the day when God himself ceased from creating. The theological implication is that only God can continue to do anything on the Sabbath and get away with it. Only God can continue creation to its fulfillment. Only God can renew creation. And this is what Jesus himself is doing. Oh, Jesus is putting himself in the place of the divine and doing only what the divine can do. Jesus is the one who's working from outside of any system that people are comfortable with in that day and time. You can hear the Pharisees stand in the corner with their arms crossed, dejected, saying the good phrase that all good church people say at one time or another. But we've never done it that way before. We've never done it that way before. It can't be good. Jesus is doing something completely new, completely fresh, something so new it terrifies them. Reminds me of that great, great, late, great Ray Charles. Ray Charles, the man who was blind and sang and played the way he did. But he was no novelty. He was skilled. He's beloved around our country. When you drive into this state, there are big billboards that say what? Georgia on my mind. You want to sing it with me? Georgia, Georgia. Okay, that's enough. We all sounded collectively terrible. I have had a cold because I've sinned. Okay, if you got that, you're listening. No, we collectively love Ray Charles. Yet when he was starting out, he would start in the, the clubs playing for romantic couples to dance. He's playing blues and jazz and sometimes R&B. And then he threw in gospel music. Now, I submit to you today that if we heard any one of these genre of music today, we'd have a hard time distinguishing one from the other. But in his day and time, no one did anything of the sort. Lovers would dance, and he would mix in gospel melody to an R&B melody, something you and I could not discern the difference to today, and they had a fit. They booed him and hissed him, and how dare you blend these musical genres? How dare you, Ray Charles? But today... I'm glad we got past the fear of the new because he's so beloved that even Atlantans will accept him for singing about Pepsi. 
Act three, attempt to figure Jesus out. Verses 24 through 41. The Pharisees are arguing amongst themselves and saying things like, well, he must be a charlatan. And they start interviewing that boy once more, the boy who was once blind but now can see. They accept the fact that he was once blind because his mommy and daddy said so. But they want to do a little separation between him and Jesus, between God and Jesus. So they say, certainly you're healed, but can't you just tell everyone right now who healed you? It was God who healed you. Just give God the glory. Forget about the guy, Jesus. Just think about God. And what they miss all along is that the only way that this blind man, the once blind man, can give glory to God is to be truthful with his healing, to be truthful to the fact that Jesus was the one who healed him. And then he goes asking some questions here and there, picking apart some arguments of the Pharisees. But but the truth is he's no theologian like they are, and he's no philosopher. And I can promise you this, he was no biblical scholar. Be reminded he couldn't see for most of his life. How could he read? So I think we can believe today that he probably couldn't match rhetorical wits with the Pharisees. So he simply says at the end of all the questioning, I don't know. Look at me. He touched me. I was blind, but look at me. I don't know, but look at me. Sometimes that's the best testimony one can make. It's not about arguments and reasons and evidences and proofs. Sometimes the best argument for God is change in a life. I've been interested in Martin Scorsese's new film, this past year. It's called Silence. It's based on a Japanese novel where a Jesuit priest goes off to Japan and he's not heard from from some time. His two chief students go looking for him. And when they do, they are malnourished and it's a journey. And so the actors who played these parts had to lose tons of weight and study Jesuit spirituality. Andrew Garfield, who's a a, a big-name actor today, studied Jesuit spirituality and studied under a priest. He began doing the Ignatian spiritual exercises, which means that he immersed himself into Scripture through prayer. He would pray the Scriptures, which means imaginatively and contemplatively imagine yourself in scenes with Christ and the disciples, closing eyes and really being there and having words spoken to you, truly trying to inhabit the life of the text. It's a grueling process of spirituality. It's an enlightening one, too. After he got back from filming this film, and he he started the press junkets and started going around telling people about it, showing clips. People started talking Oscars, you know. Someone said, what's the most surprising thing to you about studying the Ignatian way and praying all this and studying with the Catholics? And he kind of just started losing it a little. He goes, I guess, as he started to break up, I just never expected to fall in love with Jesus. I never expected to fall in love with Jesus. And he says, it's somewhere right here. And he begins to hit himself. I just never thought I would love Jesus. Now we can make propositional arguments. We could keep him out of the church and say exactly what's your confession of faith. But at some point you have to just look and say, I don't know. Look at the change 
that has happened here. And that's what the blind man does. And so the Pharisees, they get even angrier. They throw him out. They think his explanations are all too cheeky. You presume to teach us, they say, and kick him to the curb. Jesus finds the man, the once blind man, now the rejected man. He takes him by the shoulders and lovingly looks into his eyes and simply says, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's Jesus' favorite title for the person who's sent by God to do God's new thing in the world. And the man looks him back, and Jesus has deep stare and says, well, who is that? And Jesus says, it's the person who's standing right in front of you. The man falls to his knees in belief, and he worships Jesus. And the Pharisees scoff, over in the corner, scoff, scoff, scoff. And Jesus says to them, you know, I can tell that you're in sin, not because you're blind, folks. I can tell that you're in sin because you arrogantly think you can really see. Maybe I should end on that comment because it's enough. Truth is, is none of us sees the world as God sees it. Jesus did. Jesus did. And he can come into the world and see blind people for what they are. Jesus can come into the world, into your world, and see you for what you really are and who you can be. Oh, I hope that you have received this newness from God through Jesus in your life. Because he's looking at your heart and he sees somebody who needs healing. Did you know that? But the thing of it is, is when God comes into our world, it comes in ways, God comes in ways we don't always expect. So I challenge you to keep your eyes peeled. And what's worse or more difficult is when God comes into the world of another, often comes in ways that we don't expect. So please, my friends, don't limit the power of Christ as it comes freshly into someone else's life because it doesn't happen the way you want it to. I guess what I'm saying is this. Don't put too many expectations on Christ, but be ready. For when Christ comes, he comes with light to illuminate darkness. He comes with power to open up blind eyes. He comes with healing to strengthen broken hearts. Are you ready for something new from Christ today? God bless you.